Hello, and welcome to the Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. On this episode, I speak with John Cassidy, CEO of Cambridge Cancer Genomics. CCG aims to transform cancer treatment by combining liquid biopsy with genomics and artificial intelligence. The startup is creating a blood test that can predict patient response to chemotherapy, allowing physicians to improve outcomes and reduce side effects by modifying treatments earlier. On this episode, you'll learn about the challenges with chemotherapy that CCG is tackling, the role that liquid biopsy and artificial intelligence play in their solution, and how their approach could forever change the way we treat cancer. This episode is brought to you by BenchSci. BenchSci uses artificial intelligence to reduce the time, uncertainty, and cost of scientific experiments. Use it to find research antibodies up to 24 times faster than using PubMed or Google Scholar. Just enter a protein of interest and filter by technique, organism, tissue, or 15 other options. BenchSci returns only relevant published figures and products. Researchers in 14 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and more than 1,300 academic institutions now rely on BenchSci to find antibodies. It's free for researchers and academic and nonprofit institutions. You can sign up at BenchSci.com. If you work in industry, just use the contact form on BenchSci.com to reach out for a demo. And now, on to the interview. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I want to kick this off by giving people some context. Can you help listeners understand the challenges with treating cancer that you're aiming to address? Sure, sure, of course. Um, so I guess on a, on, a, on a fundamental level, we're really just trying to understand whether the cancer therapy that somebody's on is working or not. And that's really tricky to do uh, for a number of reasons. So one of the reasons is that we don't yet know how to fully stratify patients and try and predict which patients are going to respond to which drugs. And another challenge is that even if we can stratify patients, so in cases where that is possible, tumors are these kind of constantly evolving beasts that, that are ever changing in their kind of molecular underpinnings. And a drug that's, not, that's suitable today is not necessarily the same drug that's going to be effective uh, 300 days into your treatment or whatever. Um, so that's, the kind of, that's what we're really trying to address, is how we can understand how tumors are changing over time and what effect that it's having on therapeutic response and how doctors should adapt their therapeutic decisions based on the evolution of the tumor. Yeah, when I read about that, it was interesting because we have this notion of personalized treatment and cancer is probably one of the areas where you're seeing a lot of progress uh, with, with personalized treatments and people personalizing sure. treatments to the specific uh, you know, g- uh, genetics of the cancer. But when I read through uh, everything about uh, what you're doing, I, was, I became aware that actually you have to repersonalize the treatments continuously. Is that how you think about it? It's like personalized medicine on a continuous basis? That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, so we kind of, I guess we think about, we all have this, this vision of cancer in our heads, I think, of a homogeneous ball of cells. Um, but really, there's a lot of 
genetic and phenotypic um, heterogeneity within that ball of cells. And you can think about it like a bacterial colony. So if you treat a bacterial infection with a certain antibiotic, the antibiotic will kill some cells faster than other cells. And it's those cells that survive a bit longer that have the ability to adapt and change and kind of evolve in defense to, to that treatment. So what we are interested in doing is finding out when that switch occurs. So when a patient stops responding to a therapy and um, how their kind of how their tumor is changing and why that's causing the, uh, the lack of response and what is the best new drug that we can get in. So it's a really kind of iterative model of, of oncology that it kind of flies in the face of what, um, how we currently um, operate in the field. And it definitely makes the way that we treat cancer now seem like quite a blunt instrument versus something as refined <laughs> as you're talking about. So how are you addressing it? How does your approach work? Uh, sure. So I guess at a, a very basic level, um, what we're doing is we're looking for pieces of DNA in a patient's bloodstream, so tumor DNA. Um, we're using this DNA to kind of infer what is happening with the tumor and how it's changing and how um, the changes in the tumor should should be reflected in, in changes in the treatment regimen. Um, so we're able to feed back this evolutionary information to the oncologist and show them which um, which kind of clones or populations within the tumor are becoming dominant, which are becoming um, recessive, and able to kind of match up this genetic data with suitable uh, clinical trials, suitable off-label drugs, and suitable other uh, kind of front and second line uh, therapies. And to do this, you know, we use a lot of um, machine learning. I mean, as the title of the, the podcast, we do a lot of AI, a lot of machine, machine learning and trying to understand um, the evolutionary trajectory of the tumor. Hmm. So you you draw blood from a patient, and then from uh-huh. the blood you're looking for genetic uh, markers from the tumor cells, and then you're feeding that data into your algorithms, your machine lear- learning algorithms, to make some kind of prediction. I guess my question exactly. is, to to do this in the first place, you would have had to have a tremendous amount of data associating those genetic markers with the trajectory of a cancer and the treatments that would be useful. So how did you build your initial models and how are you continuing to keep them updated? Uh, so, so what's very interesting is that most of the, the kind of cancer genomic data that exists in the world is very stationary data. So it's very much we sequence a tumor once and we get a picture of what, it, what the tumor looks like. Um, but then we do have follow-up information. So we do, under, we do have a static picture of the tumor and then we know clinically what happened to that patient. So using that information, you're able to you're able to build a kind of rudimentary version of, of what we're what we're doing, which is, I guess, relating a genetic background to a treatment outcome. And then every time we now that we're kind of collecting these temporal data sets, which are blood samples throughout the course of a patient's treatment, we're able to able to really refine this model and really um, kind of make it a, a lot lot better because you know we've never had this kind of data before. That's fascinating to me. This is another example uh, of how you don't always know what data might be useful in future. So if you have all of this data on patients and then you can associate that data with the outcomes for those patients, who knows how we might be able to use that when the technology improves. It it really speaks to the need to gather as much data as possible now because we'll find uses for it later. Um, so was this not possible prior to adv- recent advances in machine learning? How would you have possibly done this previously? 
Sure. So there are a couple of things. It's um, a lot of it is the advances in the actual understanding of, of tumors, I guess. So the whole notion that tumors are comprised of clones is quite an old notion, but being able to um, computationally understand what those clones or what those populations are is a fairly new understanding. And twinned with that, the idea that um, fragments of DNA are present in a patient's bloodstream from a tumor is also you know, a kind of 10-year-old idea, 15-year-old idea. But it's only now that we're able to have the kind of sequencing capacity and, the, and the, the sensitivity as well as the cost of sequencing that allows us to pick up these very rare fragments in the patient's blood. So there's a lot in the kind of recent scientific advances, I guess, that make this solution possible. And then a lot of it as well is, is um, recent in, or fairly recent advances in kind of cloud computing. So now to build a, clear, a scalable bioinformatic and machine learning pipeline is, is pretty, pretty simple on AWS, whereas previously it would have taken huge computational resources to do the same thing. Yeah, it's a combination. The amount of, and, and it sounds like it's the intersection of a, a number of advancing fields, but uh, just uh, the sheer amount of computation and data storage available for very low prices now is, if people underestimate just, you know, the commoditization of that uh, has been really important too. To yeah, it's that. been fantastic. Yeah. So what are some of the benefits both for physicians and patients of using your technology? Um, sure. So I guess oncologists are, they have a whole suite of tools in their toolbox for treating different kinds of cancers, but they're operating with surprisingly limited information. Um, so one of the main benefits that, that we're able to give them is that they can, they can now repurpose these tools, so these drugs that they have already, in a much more intelligent way. So it's not about finding a wonder cure that beats all cancers or anything like that. It's just about taking the drugs we have, which you know, work for some people, and finding out which people these are, and, um, and understanding kind of the, the intersection of the demographic of the patient and the, the tumor and the drug, and finding out kind of where that intersection lies. Um, for a patient, I mean, the fundamental reason, I guess, that we, we started this company or the first thing we wanted to do was we saw that patients, some patients were on terrible chemotherapies. So, you know, I'm not talking about new good drugs. I'm talking about the old stuff that, you know, that takes out your hair and, you know, destroys your, your digestive system and everything. And people were on these drugs for, and they still are, for three to six months with no idea whether they're working or not. And that puts such a huge toll on the patient, both emotionally and in some you know, uh, places financially as well. Um, and it's, it's a really scary thing that you're on this drug for a long time and you don't know whether it's working or not. So the benefit to the patient fundamentally was not just finding them the correct drug to be on, but taking them off drugs that aren't working because these drugs have such a kind of high burden for, those, for the patient. Do you have a sense, and you might not now or you might not be comfortable answering, but do you have a sense uh, or have you been able to quantify, you know, any, uh, any degree of improvement in terms of outcomes or reduced side effects um, or, you know, patient <coughs> appearance or anything like that related to using uh, uh, your technology versus uh -huh. not using it? Uh -huh. So what I can say is about 90% of colorectal patients won't respond to their first line therapy and about 12 to 20 percent of patients will after being faced with this statistic will just not go on to treatment so um i guess we're not really ready to, to give our precise um improvement data yet but you can understand from that the the scale of the problem of people just mm -hmm. not um 
kind of not not being on a on a drug that is good for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's astounding. Well, when you are ready mm. to to reveal the information, please keep me in mind. Um, so we talked a little <laughs> bit about patients and physicians. How can people use your technology in drug discovery? Uh, so I think, uh, as you know, we'll, we'll both probably know, and I assume most of the listeners will know as well. The cost of oncology drug discovery is just astounding. Um, so I think the figure is now something like $2 billion per drug. Um, and a lot of that is because most drugs in late stage trials will fail. And it, it's a late stage trial, so it's not really about um, toxicity or side effects or anything like that. We're really talking about a lack of efficacy. So um, there's something I think I, I worked out there's about 9 billion per year of inefficiency spending on drugs that are not going to become efficacious enough for FDA approval um, a year. And really, you've got to think about it as drugs don't fail, trials fail, right? So clinical trials fail, it's not the drugs. So I mean, it's the drugs have been effective in, in mouse models and cell lines and early uh, patient studies. And it's just when we try and expand that up to large cohorts of patients that they're no longer um, able to kind of make it across the, the, the bar. And really, I think we we believe that a fundamental reason for that is this shifting tumor biology. So it's about um, tumors evolving in response to a targeted therapy and losing, and the, the targeted uh, therapy then losing its um, efficacy in that tumor. So if we're able to take a patient on a clinical trial, so you may have heard of Bayesian adaptive trials, for example, where we can we can take a patient who's definitely not responding to a drug and we can take them out of that trial, then we can increase the likelihood that that trial will identify the, the correct efficacious population for their drug. And what our technology really allows us to do is to make that a very iterative process, just like we want standard of care oncology treatment to be iterative. So understanding that, hey, this is a targeted therapy for EGFR, let's give it to everybody with colon cancer. And then after a month, we check their circulating tumor DNA. We realize that these guys have a KRAS mutation. They're likely not to respond. So let's take them off of the trial and put them onto a different drug. So we hope that there's going to be a, a bump in, you know, if, if what we do is kind of become, if it becomes mainstream in, in the pharmaceutical trial kind of industry, we hope that there's going to be a bump in, um, in the approvals we see, and that will lead to the corresponding decrease in, in, in drugs overall. That, and that's, it's fascinating to me because I could also see through that process, you would potentially define common treatment paths where patients start on one treatment and it turns out, you know, that they're not going to respond and the, and the appropriate next treatment is X and follow those patients yeah. along long enough. And you've got a, a treatment path for how, if, if, based on how the, the tumor mutates. Um, yeah. And it's a very, just, just to add to that, it's a very powerful idea. If you think about multiple trials being run by the same provider at the same time. So you can kind of, you can kind of um, roll in this notion of a basket or a bucket trial where we're not just getting rid of the patients who aren't responding, but we're putting them onto a new investigational drug. And then potentially, you know, there can be a continuous recruitment cycle through the late stage sure. clinical trials and we can try and get the, you know, the best benefit for the pharma companies and the, and the patients. Sure. So I guess at the same time, if for recruitment purposes, patients who aren't in clinical trials, if through getting this blood test, you can identify that a patient would be appropriate uh, for a trial, you can also increase uh, enrollment into trials, I would assume, too. Sure, sure. And that's one of the major kind of 
issues with, with clinical trials just now is that most delays are caused by lack of patient recruitment because, you know, there's just there aren't enough patients, which is a good thing and a bad thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So where do you want to take the technology? Do you have an ultimate vision of what you're <laughs> trying to achieve? Um, so I think what I've just discussed in, or we've both just discussed in this kind of um, almost nationwide infrastructure where multiple trials can be ongoing at once. And the whole, the whole concept of, of uh, oncology um, drug treatment is completely turned on its head. So it's not a clinical trial and then it works and then we give it to patients. It's more, there is a constant iterative clinical trial and we're constantly changing the, the drugs that patients are on and putting them onto, onto a kind of secondary efficacious drug. Um, I think is a good vision for me. So it's this idea that um, um, I guess oncology as a whole can become more like a clinical trial and we can stop mm-hmm. thinking about um, patients just as, oh, you know, this is another colorectal cancer. You know, and we can start thinking, let's treat every patient and every tumor individually on this kind of uh, statistical trial platform. Right. And this would become the standard of care in oncology. And this would just be this would be the fact. Well, yeah, that, that, I mean, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any particular successes that you've had to date that you would call out as, as feeling like breakthrough moments or things that you're, you know, that you, you, you could identify as being major milestones in your progress? Sure. I think that there were, there were a few that we announced. Um, so we did Y Combinator uh, over the summer last year. And there were a few that we announced at the, at the end of that process. So things like being able to detect um, relapse in a patient um, 205 days earlier than standard of care, which were really great milestones for our development at the time. Um, since then, we've been doing a lot of work into associating variants in a tumor with a risk profile, which allows us to um, present data to oncologists and say, okay, so the tumor is evolving in this direction and this particular variant is really high risk. So maybe you should increase your monitoring around this time period. Um, and now we're able to stratify some cancers very, very clearly. So kind of 85, 90% confidence of predicting whether um, a patient will relapse or not just based on the on their genetic or genomic information, which is really cool. Yeah, that's um, yeah. astounding. But I think... Um, I would, I'd like to point, I mean, it is still science, right? It's, you know, it's, it's still very hard. And uh, I think the most encouraging thing is the, is the kind of day-to-day, um, the day-to-day advances we make, which, you know, may seem small in the grand scheme of things, but they are really, they're tantamount to like a, a really superb team working extremely hard. Um, so just yesterday, um, one of my machine learning engineers told me that he'd managed to, um, increase the accuracy of uh, Google's deep variant, which is the world's most sensitive uh, variant color from 95% to 98%, which is, like, like I say, it's a small advance, mm-hmm. but you know, this, is, this is a single guy beating kind of Google's best engineer, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you know, th- this happened yesterday, and then the business development team were able to turn around uh, 1.2 million pound grant, so $1.5 million grant, within 24 hours and get that submitted to the government. So that, that was really, that was a very proud moment that we could move that quickly. That's, it's nice to feel momentum, right? Even because you can feel it yourself is. moving yeah. forward. It's, it's great. Uh, are yeah. there any challenges or hurdles or things that are, you feel like are you know, barriers to achieving the, the vision, the, the big ones? Um, I mean, 
the, the biggest uh, challenge I face. I know, I know we could probably today. have a long conversation about this, but <laughs> you know, the ones that come to mind when I, when I ask the question, anything specific? Sure. Um, I mean, one of the very specific challenges I face today is hiring the really best people. So Cambridge, um, UK is turning into a bit of a machine learning hub. And I think Toronto is the same, mm -hmm. where we have companies like, suddenly companies like Microsoft Research and Amazon Research and Apple and, and as well as smaller startups like Prowler.io and, and things like that, that are really expanding and recruiting at an incredible pace. And it's the Silicon Valley mindset of like, you know, the, the pinnacle of a career is joining a startup is not quite there in the UK yet. And um, it's very hard to compete with these really big corporate players for the really best machine learning and, and um, developer talent. So that's one of the kind of day-to-day -day struggles that we go through here. And that's so everybody yeah. come work in Cambridge. <laughs> you, could get, you, could, you could get them into the country and <laughs> people would consider it. it even though because Toronto is very much the same there there's you know we have uh, three universities here four if you consider Waterloo lots of great talent lots of great companies tremendous amount of funding behind it as well um, but the same pro same problem and I think here there's more of an appetite yeah. to startups because I think we've we've had a startup community now for a bit but it's the same thing. Recruiting is just a constant challenge. Uh, and I, I think what what's going to start to happen is people are getting more comfortable um, or as developers start to get more comfortable with machine learning. And, and as there's an increase in that, you know, I yeah. think that it'll, but that's going to take a while, right? You still have to get people uh, educated up to that level. Yeah. So, John, this was yeah. great. I really enjoyed the call so far. Is there anything that I didn't ask you? I always like to ask this question in case there's something glaring that I omitted. Is there anything I didn't ask that you felt like I should have asked you? Um, no, there's nothing glaring, I don't think. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, you did a quite good job. I'm sure you've, <laughs> it sounds like you've done this before. <laughs> this is only episode eight, believe it or not. But, oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, but, it's, but it's been quite enjoyable, so I've, I've spent a lot of uh -huh. time refining. Um, good. So where can people learn more about you? Uh, do you have any papers coming out that people should look out for? Will you be attending any events? Can they find you online? Uh -huh. So, I mean, you can find us online, ccg.ai. You can find us on Twitter, ccgenomics. Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, stop by Cambridge, you know, if you're ever in town. And we, we have a pretty good representation at most of the major conferences. So we were all over at AACR recently in, in Chicago. Um, and I'll go to most of the other kind of machine learning and startup conferences in San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure if people are interested enough, they'll, they can bump into me. Sounds good. So look for John from uh, Cambridge Cancer Genomics and tell him that uh, you heard the podcast and you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate the time. I know working in a startup, you have a lot of things on your plate. So uh, I really do appreciate you're able to take 30 minutes out of your time to talk with me. No problem. Thank you very much, Simon. You just listened to my conversation with John Cassidy of Cambridge Cancer Genomics. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to catch future episodes, be sure to subscribe. Just look for Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery in your favorite podcast player. Then hit the subscribe button. Until our next episode, be well and work smart.